0: Thanks everyone for tuning in to another episode of the Plan B Leadership in Life podcast. In this podcast, I was more than thrilled to interview George Caros, author of The Innovator's Mindset and co-author of Innovate Inside the Box with Katie Novak. George calls himself a learner first, and then author and speaker. You can check out his blog on georgecarose.ca and listen to his podcast, The Innovator's Mindset. He is passionate about staying curious and open to new learning, and I love that he has inspired me to stay curious about my own learning, even my learning lately with educational leadership and leadership in life. He is positive about change motivating us to do something creative and amazing in this world. He talks about how change creates opportunities and sometimes innovation grows from those kinds of moments in life. I am also thankful for the reminders in his book, The Innovator's Mindset, to make time for reflection, not only in my classroom, but also in my life. And I am motivated to help the learning communities around me stay curious and keep asking questions. To stay on this quest, to continued learning Thank you, George, for helping me wonder more about leadership and thank you for the very special place you hold in this podcast. I am so grateful that our paths crossed and I hope that they cross again. You've encouraged me to not only seek engagement for those around me in this educational world, but you've also inspired me to go beyond engagement and empower the learner around me and the learner within me. The practical piece in that for me is that I don't just want to search for ideas and collect them, I want to share them. Thank you, listeners, for giving me the space to do just that. I hope that the teachers tuning in today will have some extra inspiration to share a few ideas, open a few doors, and let the joy of their learning and the learning around them spill out beyond the walls of their classroom, letting the spark of curiosity light up the hallways wherever they teach. Teachers reinvented themselves in 2020. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. But this episode is a reflection of how proud I am to be part of that kind of agile and amazing community. Teachers, you are amazing. This one is for you.
1: Thank you for for doing this and for yeah, of course, being here. Um, I kept thinking, I'm so lucky. I'm so lucky to have people around me who are saying yes to doing this podcast with me. And I just really started it because I really wanted to learn more on my leadership journey. And I felt like I had something to share and I wanted to share the stories of others. And yeah, I wrote my entire capstone on how our stories matter and how sharing them Mm -hmm. really matters and so I really I feel like I'm a kindred spirit with you when I when I read the innovators mindset and there's so much to unpack there and I've been inspired by your work for a long time and um, there's so many things to think about in that and even some of your visuals have really impacted so many teachers around me as well so yeah thank you for
2: very cool the story, the story element is uh, something I'm really passionate about, too, because I think we there's a great Dan Pink quote, and I can't remember it exactly, but essentially says, you know, we live in this time where there's so much information. And with that, how do you actually get ideas to connect? And ultimately, it's through that emotional um, connection that we make through sharing our stories, which I always find fascinating in the sense that I talk about innovation, yet storytelling is the oldest practice in teaching and learning right Mm -hmm. and it's a very traditional practice and it's still relevant to this day so it's something that uh, I think is great and I think it's good that you're focusing on that too
1: I do appreciate the feedback on that as well because I think we know that like I think we know (laughs) storytelling is so powerful and the role that it plays in our classrooms in our lives and yet I think it's really important to even focus on it right now, because I think there mm-hmm. are so many stories coming out of this context that we're in right now. And in, in a global pandemic, there's so many stories mm-hmm. of um, of people in teaching and, and in that educational world, but also outside of that. And so I kind of wanted to bring mm-hmm. some of those worlds together a little bit and, and focus on educational leadership and educators and stories coming out of that and also just how other people in other contexts have dealt with the disruption that has occurred and i i feel like your book the innovator's mindset was written it it was written before 2020 but it's almost like it just fits so well in 2020 mm-hmm. 2021 yeah I feel like it was before its time, if that makes sense. It's, um, it's got so much about how disruption leads to change and creativity. Mm-hmm. Do you think that as well?
2: Well, yeah, I, I think, um, I think people find it at a time where it is beneficial to them. I think a lot of people really resonate with it in 2015, where they were at in their school, things that they were trying and as you said, it's kind of seen um, a resurgence in 2020 because it is talking about how do you actually create your own solutions uh, when we're faced with problems. And it's really easy uh, to do certain things when things are going smooth and things are changing, or, or you know, and things are not changing, you know, a significant rate. And I think everybody is in the same boat right now, and that that connection is so important um, to what we do. But I think it also uh, honors that people are at different spaces and are at different places. And it's, it's interesting. It's interesting in the sense that a lot of people have reached out to me and they've reread it and they've said it's now different to them based on where they're at in their career and where they're at dealing with this. So a lot of people that read it before found it really helpful, but they've reread it and they're, they're seeing the benefit in a, in a current context. In, in helping people not only understand change is a, is a constant, but how do you actually create change as opposed to just letting it happen to you? And I think that's always the best way to deal with it is you create the change that you want.
1: Hmm. Well, I agree with you because I read this, it probably was in 2018 when I first read it. So pre, mm-hmm. pre global pandemic and it did, it took on an entirely different meaning. And then when I read it again, And I was, you know, in this context now, it just, it really did affect me differently. And I thought about so many things differently. Mm -hmm. And one of the things um, that I think resonated so much with me was the idea that um, like innovation isn't just about technology. And yet when I read it the first time, I could see the spaces and the places where I needed to push myself as an educator Mm -hmm to be more innovative in the classroom and to help my students be empowered to be innovative as well. And when I read it now, it's it kind of takes on a different meaning because mm-hmm. now it's like, I look back at what educators accomplished in the middle of a global pandemic and having to change a lot of teaching practices on a dime and all of a sudden everyone was in a different place and learning from home and teaching on all kinds of platforms they'd never used before. And so I, I did see it so differently the second time around.
2: Yeah. And what's like, what's interesting. And I like, I, I I almost feel uncomfortable saying this. I, 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 when like my work is, you know, traveling and working with schools around the world and March comes along 2020 and all of a sudden literally everything is canceled. Right. And I'm okay. This is going to, this is going to be different for me. And I took a day to kind of just wallow and be upset about it. And then I figured, okay, well, this is, this is what is happening And then I started reshifting the things that I was doing, how I was connecting uh, some of the work that I was doing, which I've actually, it's funny because, you know, some people are like, oh yeah, innovators mindset. But to be honest with you, that, that mentality helped me kind of get through this and actually do all like, and I I don't know if you know this, but I, like, I started my own podcast. Um, You know, I've been doing virtual sessions pretty much every day and it, it's, it's kind of that constant willingness to evolve and change and do things. And I think that like a lot of people connect innovation with technology. And sometimes I struggle with that sense because I talk a lot about technology, but I don't really think about it. It's just kind of is. And I actually think a lot of kids don't think about it. You know, the way that we pick up a pencil, we don't like say like, Oh, this is how you write. You're just so normalized to it. You don't even think about it the way, say, the way some kids make videos and make TikToks, right? They just, mm-hmm. they've, ever really know anything different but I think one of the things that's happening with um this generation and I don't mean like this generation of kids I mean everyone living in this time is that there's so much technology and it always changes on a dime you always have to adjust so if you think of something as simple as uh google docs right Mm -hmm. like you you'll open it one day and then the next day there will be new buttons Mm -hmm. or the formatting will change And so they don't give you a warning. They don't say like, heads up, this is coming in two weeks. It just changes. Right. And then you have to look at it and go, Oh, okay. Well, okay. I got to figure this out now. And then you play around and then you're fine. Like I've done sessions on certain tools that I've done every single day. And then all of a sudden the next day, while I'm in front of a group of people, the tool has changed. (laughs) And I got to figure out in front of all of them what to do. Right. And I think, that's one of the things that has helped me with this is understanding that, you know, things are going to change and how, and people say to me, like, like, what do you think? What's next? Like, what's five years from now? I'm like, you don't know. Neither do I, nobody knows. Uh, Nobody predicted Chromebooks being, you know, the norm in schools. Nobody predicted the pandemic and like what that would do. But what I do know is we need to ensure that we teach kids that no matter what comes their way, they can figure it out. And I think that's the whole premise of that mindset is really things are going to happen, and you're not you're not necessarily going to be prepared for them as they are, but you need to be prepared to deal with them. Mm-hmm. If that makes
1: sense, it totally makes sense because there's mm-hmm. that agility and that adaptability that is so important now. And I think we always knew that was important, but it became so important. In this context, I think across the board, no matter what job you're doing, no matter Mm -hmm. um, where you are in the world, there was a sense of adaptability and agility that everyone kind of needed to take on in a new way because we were forced to change. Right. Totally. Um, So and I see that, too. Like for me, for me personally, I I really resonated with your idea um, in that school versus learning Um, image in your book and on your website that says Mm -hmm. school is about consuming and learning is about creating and that really jumps out at me because it reminds me of all kinds of comparisons I can do between what I used to do as a teacher and what I do now as a teacher educator and leader Um, And it, yeah, it just, it brings to me a comparison that is really timely right now as well, um, Mm -hmm. that our students in today's context are, um, they they take more ownership, I would say, and there is a lot more creating happening. And yes, some of it is a bit forced. However, Mm -hmm. we're all kind of doing that together. That that, um, school versus learning image that you have in your book, is there... Is there anything there that kind of jumps out at you or that you're the most passionate about?
2: Well, it, it's interesting because there, I've always, I shouldn't say always, but many people are like, oh, that's a fi- false dichotomy," And I'm like, well, it wasn't meant to be, this is how school is. This is how learning it is. It's meant to to actually spark a conversation. And for example, if you look at the end point of when I went to school, uh, most of the consumption that I did was purposefully created so I could, you know, do the end of the year exam or whatever. Right. I can, I can remember, uh, Mr. Bellamy, he was my, I think social studies or English teacher this year, we did like a commercial and it's it's funny to think we made a 60 second commercial and it took us like four days to make it (laughs) not because like we did all this planning, but you had to have like two VCRs. You had to like, <laughs> it was just so much work, right? Just to put it down. And I remember we did like a basketball commercial and things like that. And that same commercial could be done probably a hundred times better within a class period now. And because the technology is way easier. And the that like literally that's like the one project I can remember creating. It was very few and far between that we did things like that, and not only did I do I remember doing it, I remember how much I loved doing it. And so the 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 the, the consume the consumption versus creation. There's a gentleman named uh, John Medina who did a he said something at a conference, and he's the author of Brain Rules. Uh, I think it's called Brain Rules, and it's it's uh, talks about brain science and learning. And he made a he made a point that was really powerful and it's one I share often. He said, um, consumption or sorry, creation without consumption is the equivalent of playing the air guitar. (laughs) You might know the motions, but you don't know how to actually play. And I remember him saying that. And it really stuck with me because it's like, we're saying it's either consumption or it's creation where I'm saying, no, you actually have to do consumption, but is it leading to creation? Right. And Mm -hmm. I think that's, and so the sense of we want. Like that, that school versus learning, it's meant to say, like, if I ask kids, do you like learning? Most of them will say yes. But if I say, do you like school? Most of them will say no. Why is that? And maybe not, obviously not like in kindergarten because kids like anything, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I can tell that with my <laughs> daughter. She's excited about anything that I'm oh like, you're going to grow to that eventually. <laughs> and, but I think it's that ultimate. Like, what, what do kids see learning in school as the same thing? Do they see the power of it? You know, are they willing, you know, to take risks, try different things? So I think it's meant to spark that conversation, but it's not like an either or. It's like, how are we getting to an endpoint? Like, we ta- I talked about, I think, isolation versus collaboration. And we want to have kids to have the ability to collaborate. And I think it's a really important skill in our world today. But I do a lot of really great work on my own. And I actually think it's important. I think sometimes we swing the pendulum too far. We, we say, you know, it's all about creation and then we don't do meaningful consumption. And then people are putting out content that they don't really understand. They don't understand the ideas behind what they're sharing because they just want to like post on Instagram or share that idea there. And I think it's really kind of finding that balance. And the same thing with collaboration versus isolation, a lot of people will do group work, but they haven't done their own work to actually be prepared to contribute to that group. And I need that time to like process to, you know, reflect to have that, you know, that idea. So it's kind of saying like, we're like, we want people to be able to contribute to the greater good, but they also need that time to do some stuff on their own. And so I think it's really trying to spark a conversation, say like, we're, we're not like it's an either or, but what are we getting to like, what, what's our ultimate end goal for the work that we're doing in education?
1: I was on a journey of a lot of learning, but I still had some things to share and I still had some things to kind of dig around with. And I, and I did want to use my voice in a different way. And so that's what sort of brought about the podcast idea for me, but I guess in a way I'm, I'm sort of recording this first year of. Formal educational leadership. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah and I, I think I think sometimes we, um, I don't know, I think sometimes we hold on to learning and we make it so private that great ideas never spread that way, right? So if I take, you know, if I'm listening to this, I get something great out of this, but I don't share it, then it, it's limited in scope of where it can reach. Well, Alberta Initiative for School Improvement was uh, a directive from Alberta Education, and basically it was encouraging and there was funding for it to do innovative things, right? And so you could, as a district, you could put, you could share, um, share some of the things you could say like, hey, we want to work on this. We want to work on this thing. So I remember like when I was in Parkland School Division one year, it was like, hey, critical thinking. And it had to like lead to like innovative practices, right? So it was kind of like a research and development type thing. But what's really interesting is that many educators around the world have actually um, written about how powerful that was for Alberta education and it actually made Alberta one of the leading education systems in the world and how important that, that initiative was. But what I found was a lot of schools and school districts were doing this really incredible learning, but it wasn't ever leaving their school district, right? It wasn't like publicly blogged about. It wasn't shared. Right, and the reason I bring this up is because we years ago they're like, "Hey, we we need to cut funding, right? We need to cut funding, and like, what should we cut?" And it was literally one of the first things to go. Mm-hmm. And to be honest, with you, there was no uproar from the community, even though this was recognized on the outside. Um, like you know, when we're talking like world um, world leaders in education it was there's no uproar from this and i and i i i'm making this as a judgment you know kind of being there and i, I can't say this is 100 percent the reason but i do believe is in large part because nobody knew about it it was just like hey schools are great and we don't know why but they are and as long as you know we're not taking money away from you know class sizes it, it doesn't matter if we take money away from you know research and development and continuously growing and I really believe that if more people knew how powerful that was, and it was like shared in an open manner, people would have been like, no, you, you can't you, like this is you can't take this a lot of really great ideas when they're just kept in isolation, they tend to die, right? They don't tend to like spread and, and there's no better time to make amazing learning go viral because we have the same access that anyone in the world has access to and we need to share.
1: Mm-hmm. And I totally believe that I, re- this is a silly story, but honestly, it made such an impact on me. I remember years ago, my sister and I were visiting a friend. She had made like these really great buns and we were like, Hey, can we have the recipe? And she was like, no, because if I share the recipe, then I can never make this for you again. <laughs> and right. honestly, that story, like we talk about that. My sister and I talk about that. And it must have been like, I don't know, 25 years ago. But it it's it had such an impact because I couldn't believe that someone would that care that much about sharing a recipe. And I have always been one to love sharing and benefit from sharing and try and promote sharing, but I still see so many teachers um, and in so many different schools, like closing their doors and working in isolation and not wanting to share. And I just wonder how do you, like, even as a leader, I wonder this question in a different way. Now, how do you promote Mm -hmm. that spirit of sharing and that spirit of collaboration when people aren't really on board with it?
2: I think from, so I, it's it's just interesting because I, I kind of go in and out of educator dad mode um, and just kind of going back and forth between that. Mm-hmm. I think one of the things that I remember distinctly when I first entered education in whatever, 1999, it was there was this huge warning uh, about like, oh, you, you better hope. You better hope you get a teacher that shares your stuff because there's a lot of teachers out there that, you know, will say to you, look, uh, I've been teaching for 30 years. I'm Mm -hmm. not just giving my stuff to you, right? (laughs) Which is kind of like your recipe, Mm -hmm. (laughs) right? I don't want to, I I built this. I don't want to just give it away. Mm -hmm. And so blessed, um, my uh, my cooperating teacher grade four, Marlene Bertram, I remember her name. She's awesome. I still connect with her on Facebook, uh, even though I haven't probably seen her in 20 years. She when I started teaching grade four and I'm in my first year, she's like, here, here's all my stuff. And you go through it. Let me know what you need. And I was blessed that really helped me so much in that first year when you're trying to like figure out your way and connect and sharing that. And I believe that has shaped a lot of how I think, because I was so blessed to have a teacher colleague that shared those things that helped me. And I think part of it, there's an element of teachers don't want to share their stuff openly because they don't want to feel like they're bragging. And that's an easy one to fix because I just say, look, you're not, you're not, right. Bra- if you say this is the best ever, then you're bragging, <laughs> right. But You're like, Hey, I just want to share my stuff with you. And if you find any benefit to it, you're more than welcome to use it. I don't think that's bragging. I think that's just supporting. And I think sharing, you know, amongst, or, you know, amongst the profession actually elevates the profession. And so there's a really great video by a gentleman named Derek Sivers called obvious to you, amazing to others. And there is a humility that some people do work in their classrooms that they just think is like no big deal, right? That, you know, this is just what I do. No one's going to like this stuff. And what Derek Sivers, his point is, is that, you know, the things that you do every single day, somebody in the world is going to see that and go, wow, that's such a great idea. And you just, it's just your norm, but to somebody it's amazing. And when someone says to me, look, I don't really have anything good to share. Like, I don't feel comfortable. That is the easiest thing to debunk. Okay. So if I was interviewing you for a job and I said, hey, do you have anything good you do in your classroom? There is no way you'd say, nope, nothing. <laughs> you'd say, oh yeah, no, I do this. I do this. You'd, 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 you'd be telling me all the great things that you're doing. So sometimes I think it's kind of an excuse. Like I don't have really anything good to share because I guarantee you they would never say that in an interview. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's part of it is that challenge is saying like, Hey, you have something to share. And there's things that I share. I I guarantee you like 95% of the things I share a ton of people don't care about, Mm -hmm. but a hundred percent of the things I share help somebody somewhere. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, that's the mentality. And I don't share it to, I don't necessarily share it. Cause I'm like, Oh, this will help somebody. What I do is I share my learning because it helps me process my thoughts. And if by chance that learning helps somebody else in their process, that's, that's, that's also beneficial. But I look at it as like selfishly, if I write out my thoughts, if I talk about them through a podcast, if I share them, it helps me really understand and identify them. And there's a really great uh, quote. I actually hear this in Innovator's Mindset. Um, I think it's Clay Clay Thompson, Clive Thompson. I apologize. He said, anyone can win an argument inside their head. When you have to face an audience, you have to be truly convincing. And I I think sometimes that public sharing really makes me process and think about my ideas, right? Like if I'm, mm-hmm. if I, if I can't share this with the world because I'm, I'm nervous, it's bad. Then why am I doing it with a classroom, right? And I think we, you know, kind of going through that process and thinking about those things helps us become better at our practice. And in turn, because we share them, it also helps people, um, you know, through their process. And, and you think about your career right now. You, you said, you know, you're, um you're I can tell you're like you're like what'd you say education? T- you said teacher in there, even though you're administrator, correct?
1: <laughs> yep, yep.
2: Right, because you want to hold on to that teacher, right? Cause it's like you don't want anyone thinking you went to the dark side. <laughs>
1: right?
2: I know this. I know I know why you use that language specifically. Because you want to you your hearts in teaching. Yep. But I guarantee you that you have grown as a teacher this year, mm-hmm. even though you're not teaching to the extent that you were, I'm sure you teach in some capacity, but you weren't teaching the capacity that you were before. And, and, and why is that? It's because you now have the opportunity to see other teachers teach all the time. Mm -hmm. And that's going to make you better. Like it's going to make you better. And part of that too. And one of the reasons I shared, I would, I knew that I was benefiting when I first became assistant principal, my uh, assistant principal at the time, uh, Carolyn Cameron said you will be so much better of a teacher if you go into teacher's classrooms because you will see great teaching all the time. And so I was like, oh, wow, I never thought of it that way. And what I started to realize is like, hey, this is really beneficial to me, but I'm not teaching anymore. So I actually think it's really important for me because I have the flexibility to go into teacher's classrooms every single day to not only see what they're doing, but to actually share some of these ideas so that my other teachers in my own building have access to what I saw. And I think that makes you think a lot more about them. You have that access, right? But it's sometimes we think, you know, and it's true, like some administrators totally forget what it's like to teach, because they don't go into classrooms, they don't see teaching all the time. But if you are a thoughtful leader, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that you've totally lost touch with the profession, as long as you're continuously connecting and being in those spaces where you actually make an impact with your decisions, but you can also see great teaching through that process. I think that's, that's really important. And if it's, if me seeing those practices all the time benefits me as a teacher, well, then obviously, it's true when when we share our practices so openly. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, and I, I feel like in this new role that I'm in, it is so easy to get bogged down by all of these managerial tasks. And I don't want to be seen as the administrator who sits at her desk in her office. Like, I don't want to be that person. I want to be out and about. And so I do struggle with that balance because, um, you know, you know, you have to do things you're well, and especially now we're on online meetings all the time. At least we're in the building, but we're on all these meetings constantly and the managerial tasks kind of take you down. They could eat up an entire day and, and i'm not sure how to find that balance exactly but i do know that i am energized by going in and out of classrooms i'm energized by being around the kids i feel like i have you know just a rich understanding of students and even coming up with ideas of things that might help them because i'm able to see them in context and and have conversations and they know my name, but then there's classrooms that I don't see as often and kids I don't mm-hmm. see as often. And, um, you know, sometimes when I go to bed at night, I think, did I, did I help anybody today? Did I, was I present? Was I the kind of leader I want to be? And I know that that balance is it's a, it's a friction and attention for probably a lot of leaders.
2: Well, so one of the things, and just as a suggestion, and I actually, I've written two books. I'm I'm pretty sure I wrote this in Innovators Mindset. So I apologize if I suggest it. Then it's not in there. It's got to be in one of the books I wrote. Um, as an administrator, and this is one of the beauties. Like I am right now on my laptop, which I you know sometimes work in my office at home, and sometimes I you know go into sit on a couch, and you know sometimes I'm working while I'm watching the Super Bowl because laptop allows me to <laughs> go wherever I want, right? And you probably have a laptop i'm assuming right yeah. like you have access yeah. to the laptop so the beauty of that is nobody says like there was a time where if i wanted to do stuff on the computer i had to do some of those managerial you know administrative stuff that honestly i hated so much as an administrator and i do not miss it at all um but i had to do it right mm-hmm. why can't you go do that work in a classroom why can't you just sit there for three hours and sit in the back of class. Now, I guarantee you, you're not going to get as much work done if you had like a nice quiet office and stuff like that. But it gives you an opportunity to like observe the classroom. And this this is like a very important distinction that I made because I would, I would do this all the time. I would do this uh, both as a school administrator and a district administrator. I would sometimes call a principal and say, hey, I just want to sit in a class for a few hours. I got to do some like email. Do you have someone I can just, is someone okay with me in there? And what I would, I would clearly explain to the teachers like, look, I'm not here to observe you. I'm here to observe the environment um, that we've put you in. And so I think that accessibility that we have, you know, because of technology, we can go into these classrooms and we can sit there. And I think part of the, I have always talked about this. Like I was in classrooms every single day, like even for three seconds, I'd walk in, say hi, connect. And what I wanted to do was to make sure that no teacher felt uncomfortable with me in their classroom, that they didn't like jump out of their chair and fake teach for 10 minutes while I was there. They would just <laughs> never, they would just, they would just know, like, they would just like, oh yeah, George always comes in the classrooms. Like, it's just a normal thing. I wanted to like see what the actual classroom looked like, but it shouldn't be like if you are, if you're an administrator and teachers feel uncomfortable when you're in their classroom, my Got feeling is that means you're rarely there. It's like a, it's like a it's like a big deal. It's like the superintendent entourage uh, where we bring you know board members and we do that little fake walk, you know, and then we bend down and talk to kids and barely hear what they say, right? And it's like oh god, the superintendent's here. I gotta pretend, right? And it's you know what I'm talking about. So, and every funny.
1: Educator, is so funny. Every educator
2: listening to this, like, well, you know, we'll understand what I'm talking about when I say the superintendent entourage. And it's like, what do you really like? Is that I feel that's more for the adults than it is for the kids, right? It's more like, here's me being seen, not me seeing what's happening and not understanding what's happening and how I can best serve it.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a super practical example of how to bridge that gap and and super easy too.
2: like there's no excuse now.
1: Yeah. yeah, no excuse. No None. excuses, Van Rune. No excuses. None. Um nope. <laughs> how how did you go from teacher principal to author speaker extraordinaire? Like how I, how did that uh, I happen? I, that
2: I didn't know that I, happened. Let me know. <laughs> I think it uh,
1: did. I, yeah, I'm pretty sure. Well you did.
2: no, I, I um I was a principal and what's interesting is I would like I got coaxed by, you know, my brother's uh, big into technology yeah. professor, uh, at the university of Regina. And I was like, whatever, whatever. And I was, you know, I was, you know, kind of on my way to become a superintendent. I saw that process. And then I started using, you know, I got onto Twitter and then I started like highlighting some things we we're doing at school. And then people are like, that's so cool. Like you should come to your school and speak. I'm like, uh, what? like what are you talking about? And, uh, and then they're like, I'm like, sure, I guess. And they're like, well, what's your fee? I'm like, you're going to pay me. That's a thing. Like I didn't know that was a real thing. Right. so it was totally accidental that I started speaking. Um, but I was getting, you know, word of mouth. Uh, it's actually interesting. One of the first places I remember where I spoke was actually in Lethbridge. I think it was Lethbridge public schools. I spoke at yeah. probably like my second time speaking. And uh, I, I, I actually then word of mouth and then people see you and then, you know, I was tweeting and sharing stuff that I was doing and never like, I was never like, I'm going to be a speaker. I'm going to write a book. Like that was not it. I just wanted to share what was happening in our school, share some of my thoughts. I actually started a blog slash portfolio. And the only reason I started it, and I've shared this story a million times is because we wanted our kids to blog and to create portfolios and nobody knew what they're doing because we were trying to teach something nobody had learned. So we're I said, look, if we're gonna figure this out, I'm just gonna figure I'm gonna do this myself. And I'm gonna go through this process. I'm gonna be able to teach my teachers from the viewpoint of a learner, and then hopefully they do it, and then we'll teach the kids. And so then all of a sudden, people start reading my blog, and I'm like, Oh, why are people reading my blog? Like, I don't that wasn't the point. And so then it just kind of spread. And then uh, luckily I had a really great superintendent who gave me a lot of flexibility. Um, they actually asked me to come to central office to work with the schools and try to implement some of the things that we were doing in my school, um, you know, at a district level. And then because of that speaking, I had asked that like, hey, can I have some flexibility? Like, do you mind? I would like to go point nine this year. um, But I want some, can I have some flexibility so I can go speak? And he's like, yeah, that's great. And so then point nine turned to point eight to point five to point two to sabbatical to um, eventually just not working at the school district. And they saw that, and this was really cool, was not many people would be comfortable with that because they're like, well, you know, George is gone, blah, blah, blah. Well, first of all, it's part-time. But secondly, someone else is paying me to come to their district, work with their district. And every time I'd go there, because I'm an avid learner, I'd pick up really great ideas. Even though they brought me in to learn from me, I always find opportunities to learn from other people. Then I'd come back to my school district, who never paid a penny for me to go to that other school district, never you know it was within you know the contract and I'd say hey I was just with the school district they're trying this really incredible thing we should try to implement that and here's how and so it was always a benefit to my own school district when I had that opportunity to speak you know basically free of charge to my my where I was currently working um, to share some of those things and then it just kind of you know spiraled and yeah it was that's that's kind of how I got to a point where I you know I speak and I'm you know written a couple books but accidental totally accidental and uh what i try to do is to intentionally help kids create some of those opportunities for themselves now because i like i know a lot of times we're always talking about getting kids prepared to like work in the real world and blah 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 and i'm like why why do we always focus on getting our kids to work for somebody else why don't we actually prepare our kids to create those jobs to create those opportunities you know and create them for themselves right and i think Um, that's, that's something that I'm, I accidentally did for myself and I'm trying to intentionally do for students.
1: That's amazing. And your books are amazing too. I, I love how much there is to unpack. And one of my favorite things is your, um, your graphic on eight things to look for in today's Mm -hmm. classroom with the voice and choice. And it really made me think about whose voice am I hearing in the classroom? Whose voice am I hearing in my classroom? Is it mine? Is it the kids? Is it everybody's like, what does that look like? And so that's something that really, yeah, it really impacted me, but I'm wondering what would you say now for things to look for in today's classroom? Would it be the same? Would it be different? Have you added to that?
2: I think a lot of them still resonate today. Um, I'm actually Googling it. So I make sure that I have it. (laughs) <laughs> uh, in front of me but like the, like so for example um when you say voice right I still believe voice is really important how I look at it, it's different though and here's what I mean by that uh, I actually have a TED talk um or a TEDx talk and I want to you know a TED talks like a whole different thing right. uh, that I did on the importance of empowering our voice and I will be honest with you sometimes I'm like oh, I don't like that. Like, I don't like it anymore. I wish that would be down. Like, I don't want that up anymore. And the reason I say that, but like, weirdly enough, I still believe the importance of your voice, right? I think that's huge, hugely important. And in the TEDx talk, I was sharing about how how important it is for people to share their voice. But what I think we need to and you kind of mentioned it I think it's you, you said like whose voices are we hearing like you know uh, am I sharing my voice too much I think that we are in this time where we everyone has access to share wherever they want it's like I can make a YouTube channel I can go on Instagram I can go on TikTok and do this you know clubhouse now like there's just a million places we can share our voice but if everybody's sharing their voice who's listening mm-hmm. right and I think that we have so much saturation of people talking that we also need the importance of teaching people how to really listen. And I think so. So I think part of it is that, like, I'm looking at this problem, solvers finders still believe it, self assessment, still believe it, connected learning, still believe it. But and time for reflection, like, all of these, there's not one of these things I actually disagree with. And I actually think is totally pertinent in this time i think what's really important is that we constantly look and redefine what this means but what happens too much in education is we say no nope, let's go do new things and what happens is we move like eight things to look for to today's classroom to this initiative to this initiative to this initiative and then people are like look we weren't even good at the last thing like why are we moving on to something else and I think part of it, when I look at innovation, it's not about the idea of like always doing new things. It's actually doing things better and understanding them so in depth that you start creating. And the, the analogy that I often give, and I'm not a jazz musician, and this is a very rudimentary uh, example of how I'm going to explain it, but there's like jazz musicians, right? They're known for their ability to improvise, to create like amazing music on the spot. And it's not because they just picked up a saxophone and started just doing whatever they wanted. It's because they know the basics inside out. They know it so well, that's when they learn to improvise. That's when they learn to create that that incredible music that no one's ever heard before. And I think we don't give anything a chance like that in education. We are always on to the next thing. Always on to the next thing. And I think that... If you looked at these things today, they still resonate, but what they mean and how they've evolved and our perception of them, it can can have changed. And so, like, okay, what does this mean today? Like, what does this look like today? And like, here's an example. I see this in school all the time. Uh, we get a bunch of people together. We make a you know a school district vision or mission. We do at the school level and then it's like we're a learning organization but you can't really challenge that or think differently about it because we like passed it by the board and they've said this is how it is so <laughs> we're going to have to just stick with that and that's what it is and like really that's not that's like what we we're asked we're modeling the exact opposite of what we want for our kids so i think we need to really focus on hey these are still relevant but what does it mean today but that's the thing is that we are just so on to the next thing. And that that is like one of the, that's one of the reasons people have a problem with the term innovation because it's always about the new, not enough about the better. And that's what really is the most important is that I define innovation as doing new and better things. But without the better, it's not innovation. And to do better, you have to be able to dig in deep so you can do variances of those things. You can't just kind of do the surface level, move on to the next, you know, initiative.
1: But I mean, I think the reality is that, you know, we are constantly changing and, and even like, I remember too, in my grade one classroom, I always Mm. wanted to have new ideas. And so I would go to teachers convention and I would just scoop up as many things as I could. And, you know, that was one of the best places for all these new ideas. And then I'd come back to my classroom and it was like, okay, wait a second. There was 50 million ideas. How come I can't remember one of them? And it's because you're, you are, you're drinking from a fire hose. You've got all these ideas and you cannot implement all of them. You have to pick one or two things and go a little deeper and yeah. And that's exactly. And and we actually in
2: education, if we're being honest, we create some of that problem too, because we always fill up the fifty ideas in an hour sessions at teacher convention, right? right? Those are always packed
1: because right. we
2: want as many ideas as possible. And I remember as a principal, uh, my first year, I wanted teachers embrace technology. So what do I do? I have like, hey, here's 10 technologies, you know, like here's things you can use in your classroom. What do I do that a month later, hey, here's 10 different ones. What I do a month later, here's 10 different ones. And by the end of that year, my staff hated technology. Mm-hmm. They just despise it because they're like, well, I, like I don't know what to do. You're saying this. I just started this. And like, which one's better, blah, blah, blah. So then, the following year, I got a committee together, and we talked about like what would be most beneficial long term. And so we actually said, okay, let's use Google Apps for collaboration, let's use WordPress for portfolios, and let's use like Twitter for uh, professional learning. And what I committed to my staff is like we're just going to focus on these three things for the next three years. And if you would like to go outside of them, you can, but we're but you're on your own. You have to. That's on your own. We're not going to provide professional development to it. We're only doing on these three things. And what that created was. It wasn't like, oh, George is not here today, so if I need help, I'm in trouble because George is the only one who knows how to do this. What it created was, oh, the grade one teacher who works across the hall from me teaching the same grade as me is also using the exact same thing. And so we can learn from each other through that process. And even at the high school level, right, you see like the English teacher loves Weebly, the math teacher loves Google Sites, this person loves this. And then we spent all this time learning all these new technologies, but we don't spend any time really going in depth with the technology as like, why don't we just say like, hey, let's all just use this. Right. And let's all know it so that when a kid goes to any classroom, they know what they're using. We don't have to spend time like, here's how to do this. Here's how to do this. And I think I came to that conclusion. I was working with a staff and they were just feeling so overwhelmed like, hey, like, would you rather, like, would you rather me just pick for you or would you want the choice? And like, just pick, just tell us what to do and just give us support. And I was like, oh, that was not what I was (laughs) expecting. Because, you know, we always hear about autonomy, but a lot of people like, okay, I know I need to be using some of this technology. I just don't know where to start. And I think that if they have someone saying like, Hey, here's a place you can start. Plus I'm going to provide you support. They're like, okay, that's, I need that support. I need this. So I can, I know I can go to somebody to help. And I think that's a really important aspect and uh, leads a lot to like Barry Schwartz's paradox of choice. The more choice we have, the more miserable we become. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's one of the issues that we're creating. And like, I don't want to just say like somebody else is doing that. We tend to do that ourselves um, in some cases too, because we, we flood the hundred tools in an hour sessions. Right. And people they're like, why would they not offer them the next year if they're full every single time? And then like you said, and we forget all of them. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, we got a bunch of stuff we can do Monday, but we forget it all by Tuesday.
1: It's true. It's true. And I think that, that time for reflection is Mm -hmm. the piece that is, is kind of missing in, in all of that, because yeah, I just, I see such a huge importance on time for reflection. And I know for me personally, that has been something that I have thought a lot about in my, in my professional life and in my personal life, just even reflecting on this past year and what I've learned and how I've grown, but then also reflecting on all of the learning that I did for my masters, and mm-hmm. and even throughout my career now, as I've sort of made a shift into educational leadership, it it's yeah, there's a change there, and so sure. I have time to reflect, and I want to make time for more reflection because I think it is so important. It's funny because I remember I was at um, a professional learning day, and we had some time for reflective writing with staff and mm-hmm. one of the comments was why do we need time for reflection this seems like a waste right. of time and i kind of took offense to that because i thought it was such a great idea to offer this time for reflection and for people to write you know reflectively just dumping down some thoughts what are you learning about what are you know How's it been going in your classroom lately and they Mm. thought it was they thought it was kind of stupid and I just think like I think it's important how do we help other people to see the importance of it
2: well like that what you just said is I think that's a norm right we are like okay like I'm just so busy I don't have time to like process um in our thinking and to do this right And it's, it's, it's normal. Uh, It's somewhat in education. I think it's normal in our world. Look at, look at something like Twitter, right? Look at something like YouTube. You watch a video, the second the video is done, you get that little timer because it's playing another video right away. And you're just being fed information nonstop. And if you watch the, um, the, what's the new Netflix documentary came out in the last couple oh, months.
1: Social uh, the social
2: dilemma, right? Yeah. It talks about the attention economy. So everything's grabbing our attention. So it's just feeding us information, but we're not, like I was saying earlier, we're not expelling that. And I think we have to find ways to make it practice. And I mentioned this in Innovator's Mindset. I talk about dear time, right? Drop everything and reflect. It's a very normal practice in education in Alberta for, you know, our, our elementary schools where kids have, you know, 20, 25 minutes to to read, right? Read a book that they want to have that time. And I think that's great. I think it's really important. Kids have some choice in their reading. They have that time. And one of the things that I've seen for years is teachers wanna model that they're readers as well. So they'll take that book and then they'll they'll read their book in front of the kids cause you know, the teacher's reading cause it's good practice. So we should do that same thing, right? Mm-hmm. So one of the things I always say is like, well, why don't we do like one day a week of drop everything and reflect still dear time, right? and have kids answer the question, like, what did you learn this week? Give them like 30 minutes or 20 minutes just to write. What did you learn this week? And let them write and process. And just like you're modeling reading in front of them, you should do the exact same thing. And now you can embed reflection time into your classroom practice that you're doing it alongside the kids. Because I don't think, I don't think any teacher would say reflection time is bad for our kids. They would say it's great. But then we're so overwhelmed, overworked, we see it as bad. And so for me to ask people outside of their time, you need time to reflect. It's not honoring their time. So there's my strategy of like how you could do it in a classroom, right? You can do it right in the classroom, right in front of the kids. And the same way you would model reading, you should model reflection and, and writing and creating. And I think that's that's like what we have to figure out. Like what are some of those solutions in that? Because like I said, I don't think any teacher I know would say reflections bad for kids. They Mm -hmm. would say this is a very important thing. If it's important, how do you, how do you model that? How do you do that yourself? Because if you, if you don't think it's good for you, then you can't tell me it's good for kids. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, so I think, I think just finding that time within you know, classroom space is is good Mm -hmm. and reflection is learning, right? Like that is where most of the learning, that's where the majority of learning happens is through that processing and making your own connections to what you're doing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I love what you write about just in terms of the compliant learner and the engaged mm-hmm. learner and the empowered learner. Um, I, there's a lot in that. And I think that I've been thinking a little bit about that too, even the language that I use, you know, am I talking about engaged learners or am I talking about empowered learners? Um, right. What is... What do you think is the main difference between the engaged learner and the empowered learner?
2: Yeah. So, so when I used to talk about this, and I, I kind of, and this is like, hey, like I've written books on this, and I'm telling you, like, hey, like my mind's changed on some of this stuff too, which is like, I'm not stuck on an idea. If I think an idea has grown or I've, you know, outgrown it, I can still do this, even if it's in print in a book. And, when I used to talk about engagement and empowerment, I used to talk of them all as an either or, right? It's like, you're either engaged or you're empowered. But the way that I see it now is that you can be engaged, but it doesn't mean you're empowered. But if you're empowered, I guarantee you're engaged, but it takes it to a whole different level. And the way I used to see empowerment was, it was more um, creative verbs. Like for example, if I'm speaking or if I'm writing, right? If, I, if I'm doing, then that's empowerment. And then engagement for me at a point was more uh, consumption verbs, right? Like reading, uh, listening. What I started to realize is how much voice and choice, which is, you know, two of the things that we talk about for in today's classroom matters in that. So if you get me to make a YouTube video on something I do not care about, how much empowerment is that? Like, I don't care about the topic. I have no interest in this. But if you let me read books that I'm interested in, like, for example, I would have probably covered the same curriculum as a student reading the Jordan rules in high school as I would have the great Gatsby, right? Mm -hmm. There is empowerment in there that I have some voice and choice. And, you know, I remember actually being discouraged from reading in school because I wasn't reading, um, you know, not only the right content, but the but the format, i it's funny. This is actually crazy. Yesterday, uh, I'm working on a collaborative book with some people. And I was saying like, hey, we want like for this book, we want really emotional stories. And I said, read this article. So I Googled an article by a gentleman named uh, Rick Riley, who writes about a father named Dick Hoyt, who would actually do marathons with his son who was didn't have the ability to run. And He'd do these Ironman triathlons. I read this when I was in high school, right? And I remember in the library, like sobbing, reading this one-page story from a gentleman named Rick Riley, who has really influenced a lot of my writing style today because I try to write stuff from like an emotional connection and doing this. And why I bring this up is because I could remember this one article, back page of a Sports Illustrated. And I, like, I remember the cover is Lance Armstrong on the cover of that Sports Illustrated, And as a kid, I was continuously discouraged from reading magazines because magazines weren't real reading, right? Only novels were, only like paper books were. And I think, I don't think we do that as much, but we might do with different materials. So we might not see, you know, your that blog you're reading as real reading now, right? Because we don't read blogs, maybe some of us, right? I don't see that text you're doing as real writing, understanding the kids are writing more than we ever did right? Just on different devices. Like there's no time when I was growing up that I would read, write and walk at the exact same time. Kids do it every single day. Right. And so it's like, sometimes when we take away that voice and choice, um, they might like the medium that they're utilizing, but they might not like the content. And sometimes when we take away the medium that's that they most enjoy, that is a compliance issue too. So I think it's my, my thinking has evolved on that, but that's uh yeah I think like sometimes we discourage the x thing exact thing we're trying to promote like I've written two books now which I think is actually two more books than all my English teachers combined who my English teachers were great I love them um but I never saw myself walking out of high school thinking I was going to write a book I I honestly walked out of high school hoping I would never read one to be honest let alone write one so yeah that's you know but I can still, I can't remember any of the novels we read. I can remember the titles, but I can't remember the stories, but I can remember those magazine articles I read in uh, Sports Illustrated that Rick Riley wrote. I can remember a ton of them. Hmm.
1: Yeah, just how much more engaged we are (laughs) and -hmm. empowered we are when it's meaningful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I have a question for you. As a new leader, what advice would you give someone who is new to educational leadership like me
2: well so there's a million things I could say Um, but the in context of like what I'm asked most often I always get this question like hey you're the change guy right it's kind of how people see me is kind of dealing with organizational change and school change Uh, so if you were to become a principal again what's the first thing you change and my answer is always the same nothing I wouldn't change anything The first thing I would do is I would get to know the school culture. I would get to understand who are the people there. Like, what are the norms and traditions? What are the, like, what are the normal things we do in the school? And I would just observe. I just see that and I'd make those connections and very practical thing. I would actually create a spreadsheet. And what I would do is I'd list every staff member's name and then to the right, I would have a column and I'd say, what is this person's strength? Right. Until I can fill that out in full and every staff member knows, I know what their strength is because there's a very big difference between being valued and feeling valued. Like you can say you value people all you want, but if they don't feel it doesn't matter. Right. Until they know that nothing changes right? And then once people understand, you know, that I know their strengths, then we start looking at what things we can shift, what things we can improve, what things we can make better. Because if you go into a place looking to change things right away, people believe you're fixing, you're trying to fix them and nobody wants to be fixed and they're going to fight you forever. But if people know you value them and you're there to support them and push them, but you always got their back, they'll change, they'll grow. Like, I'm not saying they'll change Based on what you change, but I'm saying they'll always get better. They'll grow. I think that is a really important element. So I think part of it is just a, just understanding where you're, what you're entering into, what you're doing, and not just like come in there. Like you can have great ideas, but you're the new person, right? And a lot of people might see some of your your ideas and say, "Okay, well, we just got to wait this person out, like we did the last." Right? And I think part of it, um, one of my uh, superintendent mentors who was absolutely amazing. She was an amazing leader. She always asked me like, what was my, what would be my fingerprints on the school after I left? Right. And one of the things I know are my fingerprints. It's actually a very physical thing is when I, I came into the school, I saw principal pictures on the wall as you entered the school and I hated it, but I didn't say anything. I hated it though. And it was partly because, uh, I felt it was like the wrong thing, the wrong message to people entering the school is like, Hey, we're all about the all powerful principal when you walk in. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the other thing too, I don't know, this is going to super sound super vain. I was probably like 31 and I felt I was way younger than it. So I'm like, Oh, I'm going to look like a out of place here. Like, this is just, <laughs> I was like, I'm not going up there. That's going to look weird. Um, you know? And so I just it I just felt like there's just something doesn't sit right here. It just it won't look normal, and it's just I don't know. And it's probably more is probably more when the pictures were taken than anything than my age. They're probably the same age as me, but it just looks different when it's you know from the 1950s. I guess I don't know the the, the quality <laughs> of the picture. And so I didn't say anything about it until I was asked to go up on the wall. I said, there's no way I'm going up on that wall. And then I worked with my staff and we talked about it. And some of them had resistance to it because they felt tradition. And I I love this quote. I share all the time. It's not mine. Uh, Tradition is peer pressure from dead people. It's like one of my favorite quotes ever. (laughs) And they were, I'm like, you know, it's okay to do traditional things as long as they're still beneficial. I'm totally fine with that. But if you're doing them just because you've always done them and they, they actually hurt things, then they're not good anymore. We need to move on. And so I remember we got rid of those pictures, and uh, you walk in, and there was pictures of kids, like kids in the building, and we changed them every two months. Kids were so excited. They felt the building was theirs. And I know that those pictures are still up in that school, and I know that's like one of the things that I left in that school And honestly, probably nobody in that school either remembers or knows I had anything to do with it. But I know that when kids walk in, they feel that's their school because of those pictures. They feel something. Now it's not just about pictures, but it's a good start. And I think that's part of it too. Is but I didn't do that. Like I hated those pictures day one. I hated them. They made me feel super uncomfortable. But I waited, and I like it's not like hey, hey, everybody. Uh, I know you've all been here 20 years, but none of you noticed this, but here's what I think has changed. I'm just waited, build relationships on the right time. And then there isn't really no resistance to that idea. And many people applauded it because they probably just didn't say anything because they felt like, Hey, I don't want to offend anybody by, you know, saying like, why are these pictures up? So,
1: yeah. You know, I was going to ask you what, what do you think schools need now? But I I feel like I've just answered my own question with this entire conversation because it's all about connectedness. And I feel like that is what we need more than ever is that sense of connectedness, like connectedness to our learning, connectedness to our, our staff, connectedness to our families and our students and each other and our ideas. Like, I feel like that just kind of sums up this entire conversation. Okay. So speed round. Cause I could talk to you for another, I don't know, three hours. because There's so much yeah. there's so much I could ask you. What books are you reading right now?
2: Um, I'm actually, uh, to be honest with you, I'm reading how to win friends and influence people, which I've read about 10 million times. And, uh, <laughs> it's, 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 it's funny because it kind of seems like the title, it's like a sales book, but it's really kind of a just understanding. Um, it's, it's, it, there's two reasons I'm reading it. One is because I, I'm, I'm currently, uh, working on uh some books uh that i'm working with other people uh, i'm a publisher as well not just a uh, speaker i publish and try to get other people's voices out there and uh it's it was written i think in the 1930s and still like super relevant and like anytime you can do that is pretty incredible uh but it's really got good messages and it talks a lot about a lot of things that we mentioned the importance of like listening to people and kind of understanding them and and that that kind of idea. So yeah, I've read it several times, but I tend to go back to it at least once a year.
1: Hmm. Okay. Someone you would recommend following on Twitter.
2: I saw this question and I actually, I, I couldn't give you anybody. And the reason I say this is because, um, There's so many people that have like very few followers that are just amazing educators. And I think that sometimes we get mixed up with numbers and things like that. So what I would suggest to people instead of like, hey, follow this person, I would suggest like find the thing that you're passionate about and find that hashtag. So, for example, if you're a kindergarten teacher, kinder chat would be hugely beneficial to you because kindergarten teachers use that. And it doesn't like, I can, I can say like, here's a thousand kindergarten teachers to teach, but it doesn't mean they're they're actually tweeting about kindergarten. But if I look at kinder chat, it'll be kindergarten related. So that would be my best advice because I think you can find a lot of great people in those spaces. um, But it's also a good way to filter. So I would, you know, find those hashtags on Instagram, Twitter, wherever, and follow those.
1: So if you want to look for educational leadership hashtags what what do you think i think there's a
2: i think one that's pretty popular is principles in action um yeah so i don't i don't know if that's still there's like look up if you look up uh uh super supt chat that one's gonna be uh you'll find something related to administrators like somebody else is doing that
1: cool okay um a memorable speaking engagement that you've
2: had. well actually it's funny because i i, I can list a million um <laughs> because I love speaking, but I actually spoke in Lethbridge years ago.
1: Yep. (laughs) And
2: uh, it was at the beginning of the school year. Right. So I'm not like, I'm not like pandering here when I'm saying this, because I'm going to tell you something that I remember from it. So (laughs) there's something I remembered. And it like, you have this practice has like impacted schools and conferences forever, because I've always shared this. So teachers are notoriously bad for be for quieting down at those events. Like you'd oh. like, Hey, everyone, you need to be quiet. You know, people like don't listen. Right. And they tend to do, I've seen it forever and then it gets awkward and stuff like this. So when I was at Lethbridge, they had a grade two kid come up, take the mic and start talking. And everyone was immediately quiet because nobody wants to be the person talking over. A step <laughs> in your life. I remember this in Lethbridge specifically, it was like, it was, uh, it was like before Labor Day. Um, and I was like, oh, that was awesome. That worked really well. So I always tell, hey, you want you want to start off the day right? First of all, get a kid up there. Everyone will pay attention immediately. And then it will remind everyone why they're there. And so, yeah, that was in Lethbridge. I yeah. remember it distinct. I can remember it was like a, the kid was on, um, it was like a gymnasium. It was like, a, there was like, like wooden steps. The mm-hmm. st- I remember it what that was like the (laughs) finest I've ever seen a group of teachers in a gym
1: it was just amazing
2: the kid just started talking and nobody had to say be quiet it was just the kid the kid took the mic you could hear their little voice boom
0: wow well thank you
1: so much for your time honestly I feel like I could talk to you for hours longer because there's so many great things to to chat about and I love talking to people who love educators and love education it's the world that I live in and spend so much time in and I I love this profession but honestly the more that I learn the more I realize I actually don't know and that's probably a good place to be yeah. because I am really hungry for more learning and mm-hmm. I do think some of the best places to find that learning is just to talk and be connected yeah. to people who Share some of those same ideas and values, and and care about the same thing, which is the kids. And well, yeah, that's
2: actually a good sign of intelligence is realizing how much you don't know. I don't know. I think that's quote <laughs> from someone, but you start to realize that, and I think that's you know that's really what you know. I want to continue to develop and grow that way.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much. It really was an honor to be able to chat with you today, and. There will be so much of value from all of this. Yeah. So thank you well, again.
2: I appreciate it. Anytime I get connected in Alberta, I, it doesn't seem to happen as much as I'd like to, but I appreciate it. So I'm glad we could have this time chatting together. I just followed you on Twitter, so I'm I'm watching Yay. all the stuff. <laughs>
1: Later, all right, okay. I'm gonna post some more stuff on there because actually there you go, you
2: better now. I see well, this right.
1: Yeah. It's it's funny because I I actually spend, you know, quite a bit of time looking for things on Twitter. Right. But I haven't been posting very much on Twitter. Much I, consumption. Know.
2: I know. Too creation.
1: I know. And and I I feel convicted. <laughs> I'm convicted. <laughs> now, now you now you now you live right. <laughs> Hey,
2: well, thanks for having me, and uh, thanks for everyone for listening. I appreciate it.
1: Okay. Thanks, George.
0: Thanks everyone for tuning in to another episode of the plan B leadership in life podcast. I'm so excited that I was able to share this episode with George Kuros and I would invite you to check out his social media pages, his blog and his podcast, the innovators mindset for some more inspiration on creating and innovating in times of change. Thanks again, George for being a part of this podcast and for inspiring me and those around me to reflect, create and share. Oh, oh,